Hi, everybody. This is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. We're here for the Invested Podcast, where we're learning to figure out. We're figuring out how to learn. I don't know. We're I feel we're like I'm feel like I'm figuring out how to how to learn, and you're uh, figuring out how to describe value investing. Well, I tell you what, I've learned for sure in the last year and a half, at least, is that when you're teaching something, you learn. Maybe more than you learn when you're learning it. I don't know. You really have to figure things out. Especially when my daughter here is a, an attorney who likes to ask hard questions. So, Well, they say if you want to know if you really know something, teach it. Yeah. Because then... Then you'll see the oh You'll see all the holes in what you thought you knew. Yeah, exactly. And of course, what we think we know is, um, with my 30 years of investing, is pretty close to how to invest Warren Buffett's style. Um, this isn't to say that I'm at anywhere near in the ballpark even of how great an investor Warren Buffett is, but we have certain advantages as small investors. Number one being that Mr. Buffett said a while back that if in this market, if all he had to work with was a million dollars, he'd be making 50% a year. And he said, and I guarantee it. <laughs> so I figure it like this, Danielle. If Warren Buffett has an IQ of one, let's say 180, is that, I have no Which idea is really what the huge, IQ scale is. Giant genius, okay. right? And he could make 50% with a million dollars. Then if I have half his IQ, I should be able to make 25% with a million dollars. Sure. <laughs> I don't know what to say about that math. <laughs> I'm pretty sure somebody could disprove that one, but let's go with it. This 25%. Is, I, can see, I can see financial professionals cringing at this moment, thinking that <laughs> they probably do think I have a 90 IQ, which is probably pretty close. Well, I think it's helpful. Stop it. <laughs> I think it's helpful to uh, look back, to think about what you do and how you do it. And, um, and we've actually been doing that with Charlie Munger. We've been doing this Back to Basics series where Charlie spoke to the BBC in 2012 and gave four principles of investing. And we've been, we went through them originally at the very beginning of our podcast when I was very first learning this. And then I wanted to go back and talk about them in greater detail again, which is what we've been doing now for a lot of weeks. Yeah. And we're coming to the end. And we're coming to the end and, and maybe like any good end, it takes us right back to the beginning of the circle. <laughs> yeah, totally. Which is, uh, which is the idea of... of of cash flow as a very, very important uh, marker or very important data that you have to find in companies. Okay. And whether it's possible that we can buy just cash flow. We could just buy the, the a company with cash flow that pays it out to investors. How does that take us back to the beginning of the four principles? Well, because it sort of is the bottom line. <laughs> if you will, for investing in this style of investing is... As in like, what do you get out of it? What do you get out of it at the end of the day? And and ultimately, the beginning of the circle is, you know, can you put a value on this business? Mm. Um, which is... Like, are you capable of putting a value? Are you capable of putting a value? Which means you need to understand it. You need to know if it has durability. And there's things about that. Um, management is great if you've got great management. And then, you know, what's it worth? And... The end of the day is that that valuation process anchors itself in our style of investing in what we call free cash flow or what Warren calls owner cash flow. And we're going to talk about the, that today. I want to talk about 
Well, what cash we had, flow. What we had cash said flow. And, we were going to talk about. And the delivery of that. Yeah, exactly. Because I think you've, you've talked a lot about owner cash flow um, on the podcast, but in the sense of sort of imaginary cash flow. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. if you owned this company privately and only by yourself, right. you would be able to take this much money home at the end of the year. Right. But these are public companies and we don't own them by ourselves. So we don't take that much home at the end of the year. It's Sometimes. more of like an intellectual... Most, most of the time we don't. Yeah. But there are some where we do. Okay. So what you mentioned last time was that there's a strategy that actually can be used mm-hmm. um, to, to take some money home at the end of the year, which, which would be nice for all of us. Right. Right. So let's, let's, uh, let's jump into that. The, um, I can't overemphasize to you the importance of free cash flow. So, okay. so we've talked about this in the past. Yeah. But let me just really quickly summarize again. Yeah, what's free cash flow? Okay, so free cash flow is the amount of cash that this company has available to you as the owner of the company. Hmm. So this is after the company has done all of their expenses, and it's after the company has paid out also those things that you can't expense, which are called capital expenditures that you have to depreciate over time, like a pickup truck that Those you buy. Those are big purchases. Big purchases company. of equipment, typically, okay. um, that you are going to not be able to deduct from your earnings. And so mm-hmm. you've got to deduct it from your cash flow since you spend it, right? Right. And so you're going to deduct those things, which are called the purchase of property and equipment, or PP&E, um, on the free on the uh, cash flow statement. Wait, are capital expenditures and purchase of property and equipment the same? Yes. Okay. Yeah, for you know more Wall Street jargon, right? I'm sure there's a reason for that. I don't know what it is. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, so on the cash flow statement, you have operating cash flow, which is what you actually have in the bank from your operations uh-huh. in terms of cash, and from that you subtract all of these capital expenditures for both maintenance of your of your company so you can continue to be in business you might have to replace your pickup truck every five years and those things that you're doing to build the company to grow the company so in in terms of a real estate uh, uh, view of this thing your the things that you're doing to try to grow the company might be um, construction of the garage into a mother-in-law unit which you can then rent out. If your company were... We're a house a next house. door. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we won't... We're going to talk about briefly the distinction there, but those things are called purchase of property and equipment in a public company. Mm-hmm. The, the Something that's a long-lived expenditure like that. All right. So you're going to subtract that, and what you have left is called free cash flow. So free cash flow is actually pretty easy to get at. You can look at a yeah. company's financial statement, and you can subtract PP&E from from operating cash, and you get free cash flow. Yeah, that's super simple. All right. Two lines, subtraction. I can do that. Yep. And then you want to kind of take a look at the ratio between your free cash flow and your net income. Okay. Over a long period of time. You want to look at it every year, go back 10 years or longer if you can, and you want to see every year what's that ratio. What's the relationship between your free cash flow and your net income every year. And the reason you want to do that, and by the way, the ratio is simply, you know, if your free cash flow is $120 million, mm-hmm. 
and your then your net earnings are $100 million, then your free cash flow is 120% of your net earnings. You just divide net earnings into free cash flow and you get a percentage, right? Ideally, it's 100% or bigger. That would be awesome. That means that as an owner, you have available to you all of the earnings of the company that you could go spend, you could put it in your pocket or you could do other things with it. Buy back your stock, whatever you wanted to do. Pay off debt. Okay? Yeah. All right. So you're going to you do that every year. That's what I would do anyway. I would look at it at 10 years of these um, of these cash flow statements and I would compare the free cash flow to the net earnings every single year and then just take an average of it. You look at it and just see it. Is it wow, it's always 120% every year. That would be ideal, right? But I have what might be a dumb question. I don't know. All right, go ahead. How can free cash flow be larger? than the net earnings of the company? Well, that's a really good accounting question. Net earnings of a company are a fiction. They yeah, don't I mean, really exist. Remember, they're, like, they're so part of... The way I think of... Maybe I'm just thinking of free cash flow incorrectly. Because the, the way I sort of logically imagine it is, okay, the company earns some amount, they pay a bunch of it out for expenses, what have you, and then what's left over is cash that I get to take home, and that's how I imagine free mm -hmm. cash flow. So I thought it would be always less than net earnings. Not necessarily. Let, let's take the real estate example, let's okay. say. Um, the IRS lets, if the real estate that you own is a public company, you're going to do generally accepted accounting principles for a public company, which is called accrual accounting. Mm -hmm. All right. In accrual accounting, oh, that's you, the answer. You take in income that you didn't actually get, right? Yes. You 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 act as if it's real. Yes. Um, even if they haven't paid you yet, um, and you deduct all of your expenses, even if you haven't paid them yet. Yes. Right. Yeah. And since the IRS lets you depreciate your house over a twenty-year period of time, even though your house is not actually depreciating, you're not going to have to replace your house. Mm -hmm. at the end of 20 years. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's probably going to be worth a lot more in 20 years than it is right now. All of that depreciation is an expense on your income statement. But we add it back in, since we didn't actually pay it out in cash, we add it back into the cash flow statement. And when you do that, you might find that your purchase of property and equipment is actually substantially less than your depreciation. Now, by the way, you guys, if you're not sure about this, and this is really key, honey, if you're not sure about this, just assume that in the real world, real companies' depreciation is actually the purchase of property and equipment. They're going to have to actually replace all that stuff okay. over a period of time. And so in the real world, there may be other things going on um, that allow them to take uh, deductions from their, from their income and lower their tax bill that aren't really cash expenditures. Yeah. What I hear you saying are that is that net earnings is a bit of a accounting number. Yeah. And 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 free cash flow is not. Free cash flow is like actual cash, right? Actual cash, yeah. And so they might be they might have that discrepancy between them. Right. Okay, and we right. should we should just be cool with that. Yep. And and realize that net earnings is kind of an accounting fiction yep. in some ways. And some companies produce a lot of free cash flow, and some have a terrible time producing free cash flow. And the biggest distinction is how much you have to spend all the time just to stay in business. Hmm. Right? So let's take 
two different kinds of companies. We got Chipotle Mexican Grill, which we talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. And we have, let's say, General Motors. Okay. Which we don't talk about much. No, we don't. Right. So <laughs> think about what a car company has to do. They have to replace all of the equipment for building a car when they change the model. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whatever forms that they use, whatever robots that they have, they got to change them all. And those are all PP&E items, hmm. right? They're long-lived assets. The company cannot d- deduct them dollar for dollar. And so General Motors and companies that have a lot of hardware like that tend to soak up an awful lot of free cash flow. And the free cash flow in those companies is, can be very low. Because they're always reinvesting a lot of their earnings. Always reinvesting a lot of their earnings, all right? Another kind of company like Chipotle is kind of an intellectual property company. They've mm-hmm. sort of discovered a kind of a food restaurant sort of thing that um, has a tremendous profit margin. And they almost have to replace nothing. Their stores are simple. You know, they've, they've got to adjust them uh, uh, over the years. But often, let's say a company that has a lot of franchisees, the franchisee has to incur that expense. So they end up being a, a huge cash machine. Now, Apple Computer is an example right now of a machine which used to use up a lot of money trying to figure out how to do everything. Mm. And now it just produces a tremendous amount of cash flow. On average, Apple Computer produces about 120% of free cash flow. And I'm, I'm actually looking at our website, rule1investing.com, where we have what tools is, that do that. What does that mean, 120% compared to the earnings? earnings. Yep. Okay. yep, so free cash flow ratio, which you can see right here on the valuation page, which we're looking at the website. The free, In other words, there's, we've, we've automated some tools here that, that speed up the process for me to look at this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of me looking at 10 years of free cash flow, I'm trying to figure it all out on an Excel spreadsheet, which is, it's real simple. You know, you just do Excel. But, you know, we've automated it. So it tells me 120% of free cash flow is the average over the last 10 years. Okay. Now, I got to look at that and see if Apple is maintaining that average currently. And as they're becoming a more mature company, chances are, that's going to get bigger. Mature companies have a lot of free cash flow if they're in the right industry. Hmm. IBM's another one that just throws out a ton of free cash flow. So, for example, IBM, let's say IBM costs $170 a share, which it did recently. Okay. Um, IBM produces somewhere in the ballpark of $14 or $15 per share of free cash flow which is almost 10% return. In other words, if you owned all of IBM, well, let, let me back up a step. Because IBM was selling for as low as $120 a share just a few months ago. And with just a few weeks ago, it was selling at $150 a share. So let's use $150 a share okay. and assume that they're continuing this process that they've been in for quite some time of, of a lot of free cash flow at $15 a share. So they're producing free cash flow that's 10% of the price that you would have paid for IBM just a few weeks ago. Mm. That's, that's called a free cash flow yield. And if you think of IBM, let's say, as an almost like an equity bond that we've talked about in the past, yeah. you think of it as, a, as just something you're going to own, forget the market, it's a, it's a bond, it's not a, it's not a stock, you just say to yourself, right? And you buy it, what would you be getting as a yield on your equity bond? So you'd be getting 10% if you if, bought it at 150 If you got all of the free cash flow. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's if a, it's the a theoretical. Thing. It's theoretical. <laughs> now, what makes IBM rather special 
is in IBM's case, it's not theoretical. Do they pay it out as dividends? They pay it out as dividends and buybacks. The hmm. combination in our example here would add up to $15. Now it might be 12, or it might be 16, I'm not sure right, right off the top of my head, but it's in the ballpark. So if you bought this stock a few weeks ago for $150, this company is paying out to you in the form of buybacks where they're buying back their stock and increasing your percentage ownership in the company and dividends, which is a cash, they write you a check. Well, more or less, they put it in your brokerage account for the balance. And it's usually a one third of it is a cash dividend and two thirds of it is buybacks. Okay, let's focus only on the dividend for now. Okay. We'll, we'll get to the buybacks. Okay, so let's say it's, um, it's the dividend $5 is of dividends. simple. Like they, as you said, they put money in your brokerage account. Yeah. Which is pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> so with IBM, let's say it's $5 that they're going to pay you per share that you own. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're receiving $5 the first year you own this company. Actually, you probably be receiving more because they keep increasing it every year. So let's just say you're getting $5, which is 3%, right? 3.3% of your original 150. I'm pretty sure. I'll, I'll accept it. Yeah, because $15 is what's going on in my head. Okay. This is how I do math. <laughs> I go $15 is 10%, and $5 is one-third of that, which is 3.33. So 3.33%. Now, think about it for a second. This company is giving you a cash rate of return in the form of a dividend, a dividend yield of 3.3% on the money you pay for it, which is what you would get on a 30-year treasury bill and better than you would get on a 10-year treasury bill and insanely better than you could get putting your money in the bank. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. So the first thing we can see about IBM is that if you didn't ever care, all you cared about was IBM, please don't ever go broke and just keep doing what you're doing. Right? So you'd have to make a judgment on the business to see if you were capable of understanding the business that its moat was significant enough to make it durable so it would continue to do this mm -hmm. and that you could see that the cash flow of the company would continue in this direction. Yeah, so right? I'm, I'm thinking back to when we spoke a long time ago about valuation and we did a whole podcast on dividends and whether or not they should matter. And you said very emphatically, they do not matter in valuation. In valuation. In valuation. Right. So here we are not trying to value the company per se. Okay. We're just looking at it as a cash machine. In other words, we're not trying to value the bond. The bond is whatever the bond is. How much do you pay for the bond? 150 Okay, fine. That's your bond. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. And we're looking at it strictly yeah. from the point of view of forget the market, forget the value of the business. Let's just get completely brain dead here. All right, let's go, I don't know anything about investing. Could I do this thing with IBM and just get 3.3% forever? And the answer is, you can't do that. No, you can't because you have to, as you just said, understand the company, know if it's durable, check it out if the management's going to keep the durability there. And then I guess you could skip the fourth one, which is paying a decent price because all you would care about is what the yield is right. on the price you paid. Right. Which, well, maybe that's just a different way of saying a decent price. So it is kind of a way of saying decent price. So if you really did have a, you were really capable I mean, of understanding the business. if you pay $1,000 for that share and you get $5 off of it. Not so good. Not as good as the 150 Right. 
well, like bad enough that you probably wouldn't do that. Exactly. So what some people do who who look at companies the way Warren Buffett looks at them and Charlie and I and now you is they don't worry so much about this kind of valuation that we've taken you through. They're not, not going to worry about what's my payback time. They're not going to worry about what's my discounted cash flow analysis that we do for a margin of safety. You know, what's this thing worth? Yeah. Right? They just look strictly at the dividend cash flow coming off of that business. And then they buy a pile of these things. They buy maybe 15 to 20 of these. Let's say 10 to 20. You so mean of different companies? Of different companies, right? To So because they're not spending a lot of time figuring out the value that they're going to pay is a great price, mm-hmm. um, they just assume that the relationship between the price they pay and the yield on the bond is good enough. Is the number that's important. Right. Then they just buy 10 to 20 of these things to diversify a bit away from the risk that one of these companies disappears, right? And that seems like a, a good way to go. So a lot of people do do that. It seems like it would work well for somebody with a lot of money. Because you've got to buy a bunch of stock to throw off the dividends to yourself to make it worthwhile. Well, the money you have is the money you have. So if you've got $10,000 <laughs> versus $10 million, the 10000 would work just as well. It's going to give you the exactly same percentage yield. Right? You don't well, have to buy any minimum. You could buy one share of IBM and 10 shares of something at $15, you know? Yeah, I mean, I get it. Right, of course. It's the same. But if your goal is to oh, get I more see what money over time. I see what you're saying. <laughs> versus, if you've got $10 million, this is going to be a good method. Yeah, like you're going you're gonna to be like, awesome. awesome. I'm going to get whatever million I get. A year, and, you know, yeah, whatever, yeah. Um, and I'm going to be good to go. Right. Whereas with your... $10,000, you're not going to have enough. You're not going to be good to go. Right. You're not going to have enough money to live on it, which is a good point. But also, I don't want to leave this too far behind. I want to say that I'm not a huge fan of doing that strategy. Oh, tell me. Why? Because particularly in today's market. Now, if, if a different kind of stock market, one from, let's say, multiple times during the 1970s or maybe at the bottom of the 2002 crash or the bottom of the 2008 crash or something like that, then this strategy can be extremely effective because you're buying companies because something has already made them really cheap. All right? Because oh, you just totally undercut. I am undercutting it. <laughs> I, so, so let me just explain why. Because in today's market, the prices that you're paying for many companies, and I'm not saying that's the case for IBM, but let's just say, uh-huh. across the board, many of these companies are at the highest prices they've ever been. And here's the critical thing. People are desperate for yield on their money. So all these people with $10 million that would like to get a yield on this money and live on it, yeah, they're bidding up the prices of these stocks. Because they want to get the dividends. They want to get the dividend and they're willing to accept a 2% dividend because they've got $10 million that gives them $200,000 a year and they can live on that. They can't get the 2% dividend anywhere else without locking the money up forever. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so they're chasing yield. Mm-hmm. And in this market, when you have so much money chasing yield, they're bidding the prices up of these things to a price that has no relationship at all to the real value of the business. It only has a relationship to the yield on the dividend. Yeah, which is which is where you started with this strategy. You said it doesn't matter. In what this is, strategy, yeah. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But this strategy is dangerous. 
<laughs> because the stock price might go down. Exactly. And how, how does that make it dangerous? Okay, watch what happens now. You've paid, let's say you pay $150 for IBM and you're getting a 3% dividend. Okay. Okay. And um, let, let's put aside the value of IBM for a second. Let's just say the market's perfect and prices everything just perfectly somehow. That's fabulous. Magically. Yes. All right. And so um, the Federal Reserve Bank has divid- has the, the interest rates on treasury notes at or, or, and they're in their uh, relationship with banks at zero, nearly. And now the Federal Reserve says, wow, this is we can't stay in this painted-in-a-corner position with zero interest rates because that takes away our main tools for softening the blows of recession in the economy. We can't slow down an overheated economy by raising interest rates because we don't have an overheated economy. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to figure out how to get interest rates to go up. Mm -hmm. And any excuse is going to cause them to raise interest rates. In fact, they've already said this next year that they would love to raise three times. Yeah, they keep talking about raising them. Yeah, they would love to, to get out from under this horrible problem of not being able to drop interest rates to spur the economy. (laughs) Okay? So um, let's say that they do start an aggressive interest rate. Let's say that Donald Trump's administration cranks up the economy and fires up inflation and... People are making more money, and the Federal Reserve says, thank God, we're finally over this huge recession. Let's raise interest rates up to the normal rates, which would mean a 10-year T-bill at about 4 to 4.5%, something like that. Mm-hmm. All right? They, in other words, suddenly your 3% on IBM is looking a little less good. Yes. So now the IBM interest rate has to go up to compete. All right? Not, there's no IBM interest rate. I'm sorry, you mean the, I, the IBM dividend okay. percentage, the yield, the dividend yield has to go up to compete with this new 4% T-bill, right? So if IBM was competing at 3.3% when the T-bill is 2, then effectively it has to go up to 6%, like 6.6, if the T-bill is at 4, to have the same re- relationship. Yeah, but I mean, IBM isn't strictly competing they're just putting off dividends well they are actually strictly competing because dividend yields are reflecting where else you can put your money with more safety so if i can stick my money in a treasury bill and and make good money on it why would i put my money in ibm so in fact back in the 1980s you you wouldn't but that's but ibm isn't going to sorry to interrupt you ibm isn't going to specifically like make policy within their company because of that what will happen is people will start selling their IBM stock and IBM's price is going to go down and then suddenly the dividend becomes a higher percentage of the price whoa you just did something really good that you could not have done a year and a half ago (laughs) that was really good we'll leave that to the side I think maybe I could have that was really good you just said something extremely profound about the stock market so you just said that IBM, people would sell off IBM to go for other yields until IBM's stock price was down low and the IBM yield on its dividend was high enough to buy the stock. Right. Right. And I said the, div- I... The, the yield would have to be up around 6.6% to be sort of in parity with where it is now. Yeah. All right. Well, how do you get the yield to 6.6% if IBM isn't going to increase its dividend? Right, that's which what it I was isn't. trying to say, because I thought you were going to say IBM would increase oh, its hell dividend. No. Okay. No. 
It, it, it really can't. It's in a structured... Yeah, it's right? a company involving its earnings. Right. I mean, it would like to, <laughs> it's and it's not, going to be a little bit scary. It can't print money the way the U.S. It, no, it just can't print it. <laughs> so, I mean, it, there is a relationship here that IBM tries to maintain, right? Okay. So they're going to they would love it if they could increase their dividend, right? And that would hold their stock price up. Yeah. But if they can't, yeah. that stock price is coming down. Yeah. By how much? Probably by that amount that you just said to, to give the to yield to make it a yield appropriate compared to whatever right. the current interest so is. So if the if the dividend is still five dollars, in order to get a six point six percent yield, the stock price comes to seventy-five. Holy criminy. Think about what that means to the person that bought this as an equity bond at 150. At 150. They got three percent last year. And now their stock is selling for $75. But they don't care. Because the whole point was right. that you don't care what happens to that stock as long as it doesn't go bankrupt. Right. Right. Which is why I don't They're love still getting this their, strategy. But, no, but the whole point in that person's mind, the person with $10 million who I'm really not that worried about, yeah. but let's go with it, um, they're still getting their five bucks. They're still getting at times however many, right. so they're still getting their income, right. which is the whole point of this strategy. Right. It's an income strategy. I've it got, is. I've got gazillions. What I need is X amount to live on per year. And it does work. And if you're really rich, this is okay. You're not going to be happy if three years from but now I, your yields are still you know, 3% on your overall portfolio well, right. when everybody else is getting six. That's that's where I go. That's where I have a problem with it is couldn't you do more with that money that you have? I mean, can't you get the dividend and choose a company to, to buy the underlying security of that's going to also make money for you? Like, it just seems like you're kind of leaving money on you the are table. You fire today. I'm Absolutely. Killing it today. Yeah, I'm Absolutely. So using IBM again as an example. Mm -hmm. Warren Buffett started has an average purchase price on IBM of about 170 a share, right about where it is right now. Okay. All right. Warren Buffett tends to not buy things unless he thinks they're going to go up. Or there's a combination of free cash flow plus future appreciation in the stock price that ultimately the stock price will be worth quite a lot more 10 years from now. So he may not care that this thing goes from 170 to 120 to 75. If someday out there in the future, it'll be worth a lot more per share than he paid for it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he's taking this cash flow in and he believes he's buying this stock at a bargain. Hmm. Now, if you combine the two things, in other words, if you do do the work, you do care what the value is. You don't just go buy the thing because it's got a dividend mm -hmm. and, and, and diversify across 20 stocks and hope you don't make any mistakes. Mm -hmm. You actually do the extra work and buy these companies that you understand and they have a durable competitive advantage and they've got good managers who are understanding how to allocate their capital. You may end up with a portfolio of wonderful companies that you bought on sale. That also give off a dividend. That also give off the dividend. And then your confidence level, if this thing goes to 75, which it could, uh -huh. then your confidence level that you ultimately, 10 years down the road, you'll be selling it for a lot more than you paid for it. Yeah, that agree. makes a huge difference. So then you're not sitting there going, oh, crud, everybody's getting 6% now and I'm stuck with 3%. Why did I ever do that? And now I can't sell the stock because it's at $75 and I'd lose my rear end. Yeah. So you're sitting there instead saying, I don't care because I'm getting this cash flow and someday I'm also going to get the appreciation on this stock.
Yeah, yeah. And I think for people who don't have the $10 million, which is most of us, <laughs> that you, you got to do it the other you way. you got to do it the rule one way. Yeah. You've got to do it that way. I don't know. I just, I mean, I'm not trying to like, <laughs> I'm not trying to argue for the rule one way, honestly. I just don't, it just seems a bit, uh, uh, what's the word I want to, uh, the word that's coming to my mind that I don't want to say is foolish. It seems a bit foolish to just leave money on the table like that. It, I think it is. It, but believe me, it's so much easier well, to yeah. diversify across a bunch of dividend stocks. So, so fool, I, don't, I don't like to use that word. Let me take that word back. Because I think that there are reasons that people do that that are perfectly legit. Yeah, same reasons people buy bonds. Yeah. Right? They've got a lot of money. They just need a certain yield. And they don't want to go through this exercise. Most financial advisors are modern portfolio theory financial advisors. So in their own minds, they've been trained... That it's a fool's errand to try to figure out where a company's on sale and not. Yeah. So they're going to go to their clients and just say, hey, let's buy IBM at 170 and get the 3% yield and someday it'll go up. Yeah. And on IBM, they might be right. Yeah, but yeah. then again, I've advised people who bought GM with that same understanding. And you can, you know, in my first book, I talked about how this thing's going down. That was in 2006. Yeah. And later on, it crashed. So you end up in some companies having these things just dissolve and disappear and I just don't like that way of, of dealing with, you know, hard-earned money. And especially if you're starting with a small portfolio, mm-hmm. you really want to get both yield and appreciation of the company as you go down the road. And that is the best combination. Now, so, we left something to the side a few minutes ago, which was buybacks. Yes, we did. And I think we need to get to that because buybacks are a complicated topic. They are. And I, I think they're very important in evaluating the free the, the 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 yield on your investment, a lot of people don't like to count buybacks. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of a bonus, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people don't understand what they are. So and a lot of people don't. Let's like, go into I'm, buybacks. I'm, I'm kind of in that boat. So let's uh, yeah, let's go into that. But what we've got coming up, Dad, the next two episodes of our podcast is we have our second guest ever. Whose name is JJ Virgin. She um, she writes diet and nutrition books. Until just now. Until just now, which is why we now have her on our podcast. Because, come on, everybody who's listening already knows about their diet and their nutrition. We're all experts. We're all awesome at it. But what we need help with is our mindset. Yeah. What I need help with is my mindset. And JJ just wrote a book called The Miracle Mindset. So we got to chat with her about it. Yep. And, um, and it's it was, coming out after the next couple of podcasts, coming out in the third week of February, I think. Yeah. So it was pretty cool, our conversation. So that's going to be the next two episodes. And then let's get to buybacks after that. Yep. And JJ is phenomenal. I mean, she's got an, an incredible story about, about the, you know, how you go about getting a mind that, that is anti-fragile. Yeah. That takes that takes the events of your life that are shocking and hard and what all, and it turns those into powerful ammunition to build a great life. So yeah, I think you became a fan. I, I really did, and and, and I you guys by the end, Dad was freaking out over this stuff. Yeah, I think this is so powerful for any investor. You gotta honestly. listen. You gotta listen to this. All right, so I'm really glad it we cracked got it. me up. All right, um, all right. So Until then, we'll see you, everybody. Yeah, time to go play. See ya. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop. 
for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you got to do is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form and you guys can attend for free. So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.